Thanks, Sam. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Tim, and we're going to jump into that passage. No dancing from me, but David dances, and what a dance he does. Hey, in 1837, uh, some of you will know uh, that a Danish author, a guy by the names of Hans Christian Andersen, wrote a story called The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, maybe you have heard the story. In essence, two swindlers come to town posing as weavers and convince the emperor that they can make a robe that is so beautiful, so dazzling, that only the wise and the competent will be able to see it. Uh, suitably impressed, the, the emperor agrees and commissions them to begin work. So they set up shop and begin working on the outfit. The thing is, when the emperor sends some of his people to inspect it and ultimately himself comes to inspect the robe, none of them can actually see anything. But to admit that you can't see anything is to admit that you're foolish and incompetent, so everyone just sort of pretends, oh, wow, look at it, it's beautiful, look at the intricacy details. Anyway, finally the day comes where the robe is finished and so uh, the emperor holds a big pageant, gets a parade ready, he takes off his clothes and then he puts on the new clothes uh, and effectively just struts naked through the whole town. Uh, meanwhile, everyone's looking on and no one else can see anything either, but they're like, oh, I don't want to admit that. What lovely robe you have! Until some innocent child speaks up and goes, hang on, he's not wearing anything on. Everyone else comes to their senses and says, hang on, he's not wearing any clothes. Now, most of you will know that story has given rise to the saying, the emperor has no clothes. The emperor has no clothes. And it's a phrase that's often used to uh, describe a time when someone dares to speak truth in an environment where everyone else is sort of swept up in a charade or believing a lie, and also of the power of such truth speaking to wake everyone up to reality and the truth of what's actually going on. That's the phrase, I think, though, that it's actually going to be a helpful lens for us as we study today's passage uh, in 1, 2 Samuel 6. See, as we just read, towards the end of the passage, David is quite literally the king with no clothes. Uh, and so uh, his wife, Michal, will kind of say, hey, you know, you're dancing half naked uh, before the Ark of God. The thing is, as we're going to see, the surprise of today's passage is that this is precisely where David is living most in line with the truth of reality. See, today's passage has two parts to it. In part one and part two, David is trying to bring the Ark of God into Jerusalem. In part one, it looks impressive, it's, uh, it looks pious, but as we're going to see, God intervenes uh, quite abruptly and reveals to everyone the emperor has no clothes. And so the charade will come to an end and everyone will go home. But in part two, there's a lot about it that's going to look different. Sorry, the same. You know, they're still bringing the ark, there's still music, but there are some fundamental differences in this second one. So much so that when Mikhail says, hey, you got no clothes on, he can say, yeah, but it's ultimately, literally going to lead to my glory. I will be honored in the sight of others. It's a surprising story, uh, honestly, as it was read out, maybe it seems a little random to you. David dancing half naked, some guy gets struck dead, what do you do with that? Well, uh, today, I've called the talk, The Naked Truth About Worship. The Naked Truth About Worship. Because I want to study each of those episodes, each of those parts, and see what they have to teach us about God and the kind of worship that pleases Him. And my encouragement to you is, listen up, 
Because I'm persuaded that a lot of what passes for worship in the church today may look impressive and pious on the outside, uh, but we're doing nothing more than provoking God's anger. It's obnoxious to Him. It's naked, if you like. And so I want to encourage you, listen up, because I think there's both an encouragement and a warning in today's passage. But let's jump in. If you've got a Bible, always good to have it open in front of you. We'll do part one, part two. Let's jump in part one. Context. Uh, If you're here last week, we looked at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, just by way of quick reminder. Samuel has, sorry, David has come and been made king of all of Israel and has just set up Jerusalem as the capital of his new kingdom. And so in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, we read this. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Right, so David's plan is to get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. But suppose you say, well, hang on, what exactly is the ark of the Lord? Uh, it's effectively just a gold-plated wooden box, but it was really a powerful symbol of the glory and the presence of God on earth. And so, two things to notice in the description. Notice the ark, which is called by the name, right? The name of God is His self-revelation. It's the revelation of His glory. Uh, Notice also God is described as the one enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The cherubim were these angelic features which sort of were on the top of the ark's cover. And so, the ark features in some way as this symbolic throne of God on the earth. And so, again, the ark of the Lord was the most significant symbol of God's presence and glory that the people of Israel had. And so David, his plan is to bring it up to Jerusalem from a place called Bala in Judah, which also has a name Kiriath-Jerim, which we hear about elsewhere. Now, if you were with us last year, uh, you might recall first term last year, we looked at 1 Samuel. If you're with us when we looked at that, you might recall the reason the Ark of the Lord is in Kiriath-Jerim is because no one else wants it. Uh, So, quick recap. Chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. The Philistines, the enemies of God's people, come and attack them. They actually steal the ark and they take it to themselves and they set it up in the temple of their god, Dagon. Sounds great, but then the next morning everyone wakes up, Dagon has been decapitated and he's on his face before the ark of the Lord. And so they decide to go, okay, we don't want it in our temple, maybe let's give it to the people of the different towns, the Philistine towns. What happens then becomes really a game of hot potato as they kind of pass the ark from one town to the next as God, wherever it is, strikes tumors on the people of the Philistines. So in the end they say, look, enough is enough, we don't want this thing anymore, let's give it back to the people of Israel. They're excited about that, at least to begin with, because sooner or later, 70 of them look into the ark, God strikes them all dead, and so now they're just not so sure what happens. In the end, they decide it's best just to send it off to the ancient equivalent of Kenard storage in Kiriath-Jerim, and so it stays there for 70 years. 70 years, God's ark has been in storage. Uh, We know uh, from 1 Chronicles 13... They effectively didn't touch it throughout all of Saul's reign. That's the previous king. And so uh, David really has decided, you know what, enough is enough. Uh, We've got to bring the Ark of God home to be with his people. So that's the mission. Now, just as a heads up, it, it does seem like David's instinct is a right one. 
Uh, that is, even though there, there is no specific or explicit command in here from God to do this, the obvious implication by the time you get to the end of the story is that David's done the right thing. The ark is supposed to come and dwell with the people. Um, it was the privilege, it was the responsibility of God's people to have God dwelling in their midst. And so David has the right idea here. But as we read through, it's also clear uh, something about his first attempt wasn't quite right. It was displeasing to God. So let's read what happens. It's the first attempt, verse 3 to 5. It says, They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Right, I want you to imagine the scene, because it's a serious parade. Uh, David has got his 30,000 men. On top of that, it sounds like sort of the concert bands and the string ensembles from all the local towns have also come out, and they're playing away. Now, it's unclear. Are they playing one song? Are they all just banging stuff and making noise? We don't know, but it's a big event. Also... I expect David would have been pretty chuffed too. Right, this is easily the largest crowd that he's ever managed to gather together. And it probably the whole thing would have seemed like uh, the divine seal of approval on his kingship. Uh, the Ark of the Lord has been in storage for 70 years. Before then, it wrought destruction and havoc on both Israel and, God's, and the, their enemies. And yet here David is bringing the glory and the presence of God into his newly established city, the capital of his kingdom. What a moment. People are happy. David is celebrating. What could possibly go wrong? Well, as we're going to see, God's going to rain on that parade uh, because they've got to realize the emperor's not got any clothes on. So, six to seven. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Again, imagine the scene. Oops. Um, one moment, you've got the noise blasting, uh, everybody is celebrating and then the oxen sort of stumble in a pothole and next moment, you've got Uzzah lying dead next to the ark. The silence is deafening, and in an instant, the whole parade has stopped. Why? Well, the narrator says it's because of Uzzah's irreverent act. And therefore, it does seem like Uzzah reaching out and touching the ark has functioned a little like the lightning rod of God's anger in that moment. The thing is... As you read the rest of the story, as well as from the rest of the Bible, it's clear that Uzzah is not the only one at fault here. In fact, almost everything about David's parade would have prompted the anger of the Lord. See, it's the responsibility of the king uh, to know God's word and to meditate on God's word morning and evening. And God's word had made it abundantly clear how he wanted the ark of the Lord to be transported if you ever had to move it. And it wasn't like this uh, to begin with. 
Numbers chapter 4 tells us the ark of God has to be covered. It's got to be covered, first of all, in a curtain, second of all, wrapped up in leather so that no one could look at it. That's Numbers 4. Number 7 tells us that whatever you do, don't put it on a cart. Everything else in the temple got a cart. They got their own special carts, but not the ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord had rings along the side of it so that it could be carried on poles. Who by? By a special brand of priest, a special brand of Levite, called the Kohathites. None of that has happened here. It's uncovered, it's on a cart, and the guys aren't driving it aren't even Levites, let alone Kohathites. And so again, every element of it is kind of going against God's Word. Now, before we move on though, let me just touch on a, a potential objection because it could be that you, know, you hear all that and you're like, man, that is why I am not a Christian. Uh, the God of the Bible, he just seems like such a stickler for the rules. I mean, like Uzzah, give the guy a break. He's trying to help, right? He was sort of walking along. It looked like it was going to stumble. So he thought, hey, better, like, I don't want it to break on the ground. So he reaches out and touches it and God smites him for it. What's up with that? Well, if that's what you're thinking, um, I am very sympathetic to it because a couple times reading through, I felt similarly. But I think we all need to understand what happens here is less about rules and more about reality. So I want you to imagine I take my kids on a camping trip. I've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And I say to the kids, okay, kids, um, just be careful of the fire. Don't get too close. And whatever you do, do not touch it. I say that less because I'm concerned about rules and more because I'm concerned about the reality of what happens when flesh touches fire, right? If someone gets burnt, it's not the fire's fault. That's just what fire does. Fire, by its very nature, consumes anything that comes into contact with it. It's the same with God. Uh, the book of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. That's not His fault, it's who He is. He's so holy and righteous that He consumes anything unholy or unrighteous that might come into his presence. That's why God gave his people the rules. It's not because he's a stickler for process, it's because he's a father trying to make sure his kids don't get burnt when they come into his presence. See, this is the problem with David's parade. They're not living in line with the truth of reality. They have a nuclear reactor in their midst, and they're treating it like a candle. And so, yeah, when Uzzah kind of reaches out and touches it and gets struck down, God's not being finicky or petty. It's a wake-up call to reality, uh, both to David and all the people, and now us reading on to say, hang on, you have seriously underestimated the holiness of the God you worship. Now, just as an aside, I, I think this is probably why David gets angry. Did you notice in verse 8 we read, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Now, first time you read that, you might assume David's angry at God. It doesn't actually say that. It tells us why he's angry. God struck him. It doesn't tell us who he's angry at. My hunch is maybe he begins getting angry at God. After all, God's reigned on his parade. You know, that was his moment. But I suspect as time went on, it actually grew into anger at himself. 
Anger that he should have known better. Anger that he failed to take account of who God clearly said he was. Holy, righteous, a consuming fire. Either way, uh, in the end, it prompts him to temporarily abandon the mission. Verse 9 and 10, we read, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Once again, the ark of God goes into storage. And so he's wondering, okay, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Again, David had the right idea. It was both the privilege and the responsibility of God's people to have God's presence dwelling in their midst. It's the right idea, but how do I do it? Uh, Well, uh, it takes David another three months of what I suspect is probably sleepless nights, tossing and turning, asking that question. How can the ark of God come to me before he comes up with an answer? We're going to look at it in part two. Before we do, though, very quickly, what do we learn from the first experience of David? Sort of, What can we draw out of it? Well, it's a pretty simple and straightforward point, to be honest, but I think the naked truth about worship is that sometimes worship that looks impressive and pious on the outside can be obnoxious in God's sight. Right? It doesn't matter if you've got a massive group of people an incredible band, and a great leader, you can still provoke God's anger in worship. Now, the presence of those things doesn't guarantee it's bad worship either. This is not a dig on megachurches. Don't hear me saying that, because you're going to get all of those things in the second time, it's going to be pleasing to God. So that's not the issue. But I suppose I do, I do want to encourage you not to get swept up in the charade, to just go along with the parade. Grace City, our God is a consuming fire. He's holy. He's pure, He is righteous, and we need to take that into account if we are going to dare to try and come into His presence. In fact, given what goes on in some churches today, I'm half surprised we don't have more people struck dead like Uzzah. I'm not really surprised, uh, because God's patience means salvation. And so while He is holy and righteous, He is also loving and merciful. And so I think He does what He does to Uzzah as a warning to remind all of us, to remind David, to remind us, the people, God is holy. And just this nice song and dance and celebrating before the Lord isn't going to cut it. If you want God to be pleased with your worship, if you want to bring God close, uh, to dwell in our hearts, to dwell in our presence, it's going to take more than just a show. So what will it take? What will it take? Well, we've done part one. Let's, let's move on to part two. Read with me this time from verse 12. It says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. And so David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Obed-Edom was a Gittite, uh, which means he's a Philistine from the city of Gath. And so uh, when David sent the Ark of God there earlier, it's probably because no one else wanted it. You know, maybe they're thinking, hey, this Philistine from Gath probably doesn't quite realize the magical gift that we're giving him. Good luck. Um, But in a remarkable moment of grace, God blesses Obed-Edom and his entire household. Um, Now, we're not told exactly what form that blessing takes, but we are told that David hears about it, and that's significant. 
It's significant because up until this point, really David, all David knows from experience is that the presence of God in the ark brings death and destruction and wreaks havoc on anywhere it goes. Happened 70 years ago, it happened to him. And so he says, I, I can't touch it. Whereas now he hears, okay, there is another option. There, it is possible to experience the blessing of God's presence among you and not get smited. And he wants it. He wants the blessing of God's presence. He wants it for himself. He wants it for his kingdom. So what does he do? Well, we're going to see uh, two key differences in this version of events. Uh, the first is atonement. Atonement. Look with me in verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And what's the first thing you notice? Last time, uh, it was on a cart. This time, it's being carried. Uh, we also know from the parallel account in 1 Chronicles that those who were carrying it are Levites this time. In other words, David has clearly done the work. He's clearly gone and examined God's law. Okay, how do we take account of God's holiness? But the second thing to notice is the sacrifice. Uh, I used to think it was every six steps that they made a sacrifice. So it would have been a lot of sacrifices. Uh, some people go that way. Uh, most likely it's they took six steps, then made a sacrifice right at the start of the journey before carrying on. What's the point of them though? Like, What is going on when they make the sacrifice? The short answer is almost certainly it's a sacrifice of atonement. See, uh, when God gave his law, he didn't say, hey, I'm a consuming fire, stay away. Remember, it was the privilege and the responsibility of God's people for God to dwell with them. That, that's what they were supposed to want, certainly what he wanted. They didn't say just stay away. No, he gave them the sacrificial system. And in the sacrificial system, what would happen is a worshipper would bring an animal and they would lay their hand on its head. They would kill it in recognition that the animal was dying in the place of them. It was suffering the consequences. Well, it was dying uh, in their place. And so as a result, uh, their sin was atoned for, forgiveness was secured, and that God could dwell in their midst without His holiness consuming them like fire. That is almost certainly what's going on here. Uh, the sacrifice is a way of David saying, okay, God, we got it wrong first time. We're not going to make the same mistake again. We recognize you are holy, more holy, more righteous, more pure than we'd ever dared imagine. And so if you're going to come and dwell in our midst, we need you to have mercy. Uh, take the ox, the bull, take the fattened calf. Uh, uh, strike them this time. Uh, don't let there be another Uzzah. Uh, strike them instead of us so that we might have the blessing of your presence with us. And in the kindness of God, that's what he does. Story kind of finishes sort of in verse 17 to 19. It says, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. The ark of God, the great symbol of his glory and presence, is finally 
at home, dwelling among the people of God. And so they enjoy fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, and enjoy the blessings of God's King. That's the first difference. There is a recognition of God's holiness and the necessity of atoning for sin through sacrifice. But there is a second difference. There's a second difference, and this is uh, what I'm calling humility. And I get the language of humility uh, partly from David's response to his wife, Michal, in verse 22. We'll come to that in a moment. But also in the contrast between what David wears this time around and what he wore last time around. See, we're told explicitly what he's wearing this time. It's in verse 14. It says, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, uh, we'll come back to the dancing, but notice what he's wearing, a linen ephod. What's that exactly? Well, truth be told, no one is really sure. Um, Though it is fairly common in Christian culture to sort of assume that a linen ephod was basically a loincloth, and when you add it together with the idea that Michal says he's dancing half-naked before the ark, most of us probably picture something like this. I got this from a blog article entitled, Was David Dancing in His Tidy Whities? <laughs> he kind of looks like he needs to be arrested, doesn't he? So let's move on from that. But I think that's most how most of us have typically sort of read this passage. David is dancing and he's in a loincloth. And, well, that's probably not how it went down. See, the linen ephod is more likely a priestly garment, a, a garment that the priests wore. And uh, we know this for two reasons. The first is that in 1 Samuel 2, the boy Samuel is described as wearing a linen ephod as he's apprenticing under the priest Eli in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And so, you know, it's a priestly garment there. We're also told that a linen ephod, or certainly a robe of linen, is what all the priests were wearing at this time in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles. So again... uh, 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles tell two versions of the same event. Let me show you the Chronicles version of this. It's in uh, 1 Chronicles 15, 27. It says, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. Now... Uh, In other words, something like this is possibly closer to reality. Now, again, whether exactly that's what he looked like is not really the point. The point is more that he's dressed like a priest. Uh, This time, he's dressed like the other priests. Remember, they're wearing robes of linen. He's got a robe of linen as well as this linen ephod. And so this time, he's dressed like all the other priests. What was he wearing last time, though? Well, truth is, we don't know. He could have been wearing a linen ephod, but I doubt it. Let me give you my hunch. My guess is that last time he was dressed as a warrior. Because do you remember how our passage starts? If you've got a Bible, just scan your eyes at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. That little phrase, able young men, is literally chosen, which is code for warrior. It's the soldiers, 30,000 soldiers. And so first time round, I reckon David is dressed as a conquering king, leading an army of 30,000 soldiers in a display of force. This time round, however, he's dressed like a priest. Uh, He's surrounded by other priests, and there is no mention of the 30,000 soldiers. 
In other words, I think we are supposed to notice, ah, we thought it was the same kind of parade, but this is a very different kind of parade. It's led by a very different kind of man. This is a changed man. In fact, I want to suggest it's a humbled man. Now, if you're not convinced, which is fine, I do think we get confirmation of this in the interchange between David and his wife, Michal. See, as this whole parade is entering the city, Michal is in an upstairs bedroom in the palace and she sort of sees it through a window. And we're told she despises David in her heart. And so when he gets home, she sort of comes out to meet him. And in this phrase that's just dripping with sarcasm, she says, Oh, how the king has distinguished himself today. Now, the NIV translation also has her accusing David of dancing half-naked before the slave girls. The thing is, that word half-naked is more literally just uncover. And so the accusation is more accurately that David has danced uncovered in the sight of the common folk. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that, you know, with all the dancing and the leaping and the twisting, some poor slave girl has seen more than she wanted to. But I doubt it. Remember, he's probably not wearing a loincloth. He's wearing a linen ephod. And so if it's a comment about revealing too much skin... My guess is they've seen an ankle, maybe they've seen a knee, but I doubt much more. Then again, it may actually have nothing to do with the skin. Uh, some commentators suggest that David's uncovering himself here is actually just a reference to him taking off all the royal regalia of the king and instead donning the clothes of a priest. Uh, whatever the case, it's clear that Michal thinks it's behaviour and probably dress unbefitting of a king. I just think about Macau. What, what kind of king was she hoping for, used to, wanting? This is the daughter of King Saul. King Saul, multiple times, had described his head and shoulders above the rest. He oozed physical power. And think about David, her husband. He won her by paying the bride price of 200 Philistine lives. Again, that is a, strength of, that is a, a sign of physical strength and power. What's this? Here's the king of Israel taking off his royal robes and mixing with the common people. That's not power, that's not weakness, that's shameful. At least that's how she saw it. But look at how David responds in verse 22. He says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you speak of, I will be held in honour. Uh, now, again, I don't know that our English translations help us all that much here. Uh, because, you know, for example, uh, they've already pushed us in the direction of nudity. And so you read something like, I'll do something even more undignified than this. I don't know. I'm thinking, what are you, like, are you going to take the loincloth off? This is just getting weird. What's going on? Um, the thing is, the language of humiliation is actually just humility. And so it's significant that David says, I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David's point to Michal is, Look, you may see my behavior as undignified for a king, but today isn't about me. This is about the glory and the honor of God. And what's more, God's kingdom is upside down. And so what she sees as humiliation, God sees as humility. And in time, God will Exalt, God will honour David and his kingdom. 
and honor him, he does. Uh, as we're going to see next week, Charlie's going to take us through 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to see David's ambition is to build a house for the Lord. Uh, God says, no, 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 no. Don't build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to establish your throne forever. And so the second difference between this parade and the first one is this time that there is a willingness from the king to make himself nothing, to take on the very nature of a servant and to humble himself before the Lord. Let me close. Uh, let me close. I, I said I wanted to call today's talk The Naked Truth About Worship. So what is the naked truth about worship? Uh, well, maybe you've been sitting there hoping, uh, particularly on a passage like today. You're, you're sitting there hoping that I'm going to get the end of today's talk and tell you to uh, worship God like David. You know, close your eyes, uh, dance before the Lord, surrender yourself to reckless abandon, because that's what David did, isn't it? You know what, the truth is, if you want to do that, be my guest. I'm certainly not going to stop you. If you start to take your clothes off, we might need to get involved. But uh, if you're loving, servant-hearted, you can praise God however you want. But I suppose I want to suggest that to draw an application like that, even if it is true, is actually to miss the whole point of why God has included this story in our Bibles. See, uh, Jesus, when he's speaking with the Pharisees, says, you guys, you diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you find life, but you fail to see they testify about me. I am the point of all the Scriptures. And so, Gracie, I want to encourage you, let's not make the same mistake. This is a story about Jesus. How? Well, let's think about it. If the application is, go and dance like David, the assumption is that you are the David in the story, which is a problem, because it also means it's your responsibility to go and get God and bring Him close, doesn't it? Uh, but you're not King David. Uh, if anything, you're one of the inhabitants of Jerusalem who gets to feast on the gifts of David, you know, the raisins and the cakes, uh, after the whole thing is over. See, at the end of the day, what we have in 2 Samuel 6 is a story about a king who atoned for a sin and humbled himself to bring God close. That is a story that points us forward to Jesus. In Jesus, we have a king who became a priest in order to atone for sin. He's the one who made it possible for God to dwell in our midst, in our heart, without it, His holiness consuming us. Uh, in Jesus, we have a king who didn't hold on to His power, but instead humbled Himself before the Lord. He allows Himself to be stripped half-naked and then suffer the humiliation of death on a cross. But it was in His humiliation, in His humility, that God honoured him. And so three days later, he raised him to life, gave him the name above every name. He gave him a kingdom. He made him king of a kingdom that will never perish, spoil or fade. See, the difference between Jesus and David. Uh, David brings the ark of God into his kingdom. Jesus brings people like you and I into God's kingdom. That's better by far. So, the naked truth about worship is that you don't need to do anything to bring God close. And Jesus has already done that for us. We just share in his blessings. And therefore, if you want God to come close, you don't need to dance. You can if you want. You don't need a big band or a great crowd. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but that is not what brings God close. 
Instead, if you want God to come close, then trust in Jesus and enter his kingdom by faith because that is where God is. See, at the end of the day, worship is about so much more than singing, dancing before the Lord. Worship is about living a life before the Lord. It's about feasting on the blessings and the benefits of King Jesus, the King who atoned for sin and humbled himself to bring God close. And so if you haven't done that yet, but you want the blessing of God's presence in your life, in your heart, through faith, by the Spirit, in our presence as we gather together every Sunday, and dwelling in God's presence in His kingdom for all eternity, in the new heavens and new earth, and trusting Christ, the King of His kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for King Jesus, the one who atoned for our sin and humbled himself to bring you close. Lord, help us as we sing now, as we sing in your presence to know that it's not because of anything that we're doing that we can stand in your presence, but only because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. We share in the fruit of his labor. Help us to live all our lives as an act of worship in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.